Amen. God is good. And all the time. God is good. You know, I want to touch on something Barbara said. Barbara said that, you know, we have our, could have our best day ever. You know, I wonder how many best days ever we had. But you know what I want to touch on? Even when we are having our worst day. You know, maybe we've got the flu, we're home, we're miserable. We're sick. Maybe we're dealing with some sickness, it's a disease. In our worst day, friends, when we have Jesus Christ in our hearts, we can still have the peace. We can still have the comfort in knowing that we are His. We can have the comfort that we are knowing that we are His child, that we are saved. So even at our worst, we can find peace and still be good. Even when we're miserable and suffering. I know we don't like that. But we can still know that God is with us. That He can strengthen us. That He, he still loves us, Amen. even at our worst. But we like the best days. And really, every day, we, every day, Lord, thank You for another day. This can be a great day in You, no matter what may come. Right? Amen? Amen. Amen. This morning I titled my message, The Old versus the new and you'll figure it out as we go through and it's very shocking I'm, I'm preaching from Luke chapter 5 verses 33 through 39 we're going to use the New Living Translation for this this morning but it's such a short passage for me right well don't fear I've got a lot of other scripture to go along with it now normally I've got a couple pages worth or you know almost a whole chapter uh, but this is a great passage uh, that the Lord has given us today and I, I was telling Barbara, I, I, I kind of fell in love with the book of Luke here lately. And I love the detail, and I, I just love it. So let's just begin by reading the scripture, and then we'll have a prayer. Luke five thirty-three through 39. One day, some people said to Jesus, John the Baptist's disciples fast and pray regularly, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. Why are your disciples always eating and drinking? Jesus responded, Do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. But someday the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Then Jesus gave them this illustration. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and uses it to patch an old garment. For then the new garment would be ruined, and the new patch wouldn't even match the old garment. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. For the new wine would burst the wineskins, spilling the wine and ruining the, ruining the skins. New wine must be stored in new wineskins. But no one who drinks the old wine seems to want the new wine. The old is just fine, they say. May God add His blessings to the hearing and the reading of His Word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank You and praise You for Your presence. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, we said in the responsive reading that your word is inspired father we believe your word to be true for for correction for reproof and lord to bless us lord to encourage us and we just do thank you for it we pray that your word would just reach out and speak to the hearts that need to hear it today father we thank you for the forgiveness that we can find in your word we thank you for the peace that we can find in your word and father just again pray that you just bless us speak to our hearts and our minds today Father, help us to grow in our relationship with you for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As you read this, the first, very first part of this is you almost get the 
inclination that someone's trying to drive a wedge. It's like they're trying to drive a wedge between the disciples of Jesus and the disciples of John. said, Jesus, why don't your disciples fast? I mean, look, John the Baptist's disciples, they fast regularly. And even the Pharisees fast regularly, the disciples of the Pharisees. Why is it that you don't fast? Why don't your disciples fast? They're trying to drive a wedge. You know, it'd be like, well, why do the people in that church across the street, they have a meal every week and they celebrate every week. Why don't you do it over here? Well, because that's what God's called them to do. God's called this one to do this. Don't be jealous. They're trying to invoke jealousy there. Don't worry about what the church down the road or down the street's doing or what the believers over here are doing or believers over there are doing. Do what God has called you to do. But they're trying to drive this wedge in there and create division and dissension among the disciples of John's disciples and Jesus' disciples and even the disciples of the Pharisees. But when we look at these verses, and then if we look at the passages before our reading today, and even some of them after, we're going to find that the Pharisees are always questioning Jesus. They're always looking at everything He did and everything He said, trying to find something with which they can accuse Him. That's what they're, what they're doing here. And trying to figure out who the some people were, the some people that said this. Now, it may have very well been the Pharisees, but it didn't say the Pharisees asked Him. But I tend to, I mean, in the, the verses before our reading, we're going to read some of them, the Pharisees straight out ask Him a question. But here it just said some people. So in my mind, we, I know the Pharisees were there. And I have the feeling that the Pharisees were like whispering over in someone's ear, hey, I wonder why his disciples don't fast like John the Baptist. So they were prodding others to ask the question. You know, if you ever have worked in a place where there's a lot of people and you've ever had big meetings, I mean, you guys work in the school system, and I know at the railroad, we had a big meeting, we had a big manager from Jacksonville come in, if we had a whole crowd of people in there, about 75 people, I could always count on, I knew that there was like three or four people that would always ask a question. Everybody else was too, oh, I'm not asking anything. You know, that's a big shot. I'm not asking anything. But there was always a few guys that, boom, they would speak right up. The Pharisees probably knew because that's their community. They knew who would ask, so they were whispering in their ear, hey, ask them this, ask them that. They didn't need to. They was prodding others to do their work for them, right? to try to cause division. And when I say the old versus the new, because that's what is at play here in Luke chapter 5. It's the old spirit of ritualism. It's the old spirit of tradition that's found in the old covenant. It's that old religious system, if you will, versus the new covenant, which is in Jesus Christ which is grace, which is freedom from our sins. So that's the old versus the new. Now I'm not real comfortable with just saying the old covenant versus the new covenant. Because friends, the old covenant was good. The old covenant was good that God gave to the nation of Israel. It wasn't a bad thing. It truly was a blessing for them to be that nation that God chose to make covenant with, 
to give His commandments with. It was a great blessing for them. And God intended them to follow it as He gave it to them and to show the nations around them that He wants a relationship with mankind, to show them how they could live their lives in a moral way to be right with Him. And it was given as a, an ordinance that they could know what sin was, to know how they ought to live. And God also gave them the covenant, the, the sacrificial system, the, a way that they could annually bring their sacrifices before God and have forgiveness, but it was temporal, as we all know. They had to come back year after year. But it was good in the way God intended it. If they would have only stuck to that. But they wanted to add to and add to. Well, we've got to add this to that law. We've got to add this to that law. Man added. The scribes and the Pharisees added to it. So since fasting was the, kind of the first point here, let's look at God's requirement concerning fasting. The sole fast required by the law, since that's kind of what we're talking about here, by the law of Moses, was the great day of the atonement. It's found in Leviticus 23, 26, and 27. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also the tenth day of this seventh month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls. My friends, that's the fast. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. In Acts chapter 27, 9, the day of atonement is called the fast. That's what they call it. It's the fast. That's where you will afflict your souls. You will refrain from eating any food. And what it, you know, the fast is intended to be a time of serious reflection. Reflection between you and God. You know, reflect on their lives, repent of their sins, be sorrowful for their sins, and communicating with God. So it's a, a time of seriousness. You know, think about someone that has a loved one that they were just in a tragic accident. And they're at the hospital, their loved one's in critical condition in ICU. You've been there already for a day and a half and you haven't eaten anything. And your friends come and say, oh, have you had anything to eat? No. Well, let's go get something to eat. No, I am not worried about it. only thing I am worried about right now is my loved one in there. My wife or my husband or my child that's in there sick. That's the only thing that's concerning me right now. It's a very serious time, right? They're afflicted. That's it. They are afflicted because of this tragedy that has happened in their lives. My friends, that's what it's to be with God. We aren't concerned about food. We aren't concerned about it because we are in a serious time with the Lord. Our souls are to be afflicted. Right now, He's the only thing I can think about. That's what it should be about. That's what fasting is supposed to be. That's the only thing I can think about right now is my time to listen to God and speak to God as we communicate back and forth. That's what fasting is to be. Now, yes, there were other occasions where fast were called for. Special occasions. Maybe occasions dictated by circumstances. There were times of sickness where they would call for a fast. You can find reference to that in Psalms 35, 13. And if there would be a death, sometimes they would fast. Or... Maybe they're considering going to battle, going to war, so they might 
Call on the people to fast and seek God's guidance. Realizing their lost condition. Think of Jonah. He didn't want to go speak to the people of Nineveh. He wanted God to send fire down and destroy them. But he went reluctantly and preached to the people of Nineveh that they needed to repent of their sins. And the king called on the nation to fast and put on their sackcloth and ashes and call out to God. And God heard their prayers. Sometimes important decisions that need to be made. We may fast. But the sole requirement of the law for fasting was the great day of atonement. The Pharisees would often fa- would fast often. Generally, about twice a week, the Pharisees would fast. But you know what the problem with their fasting was? It wasn't for the right reasons. One commentator says that they fasted in order to have lucky dreams or to obtain the interpretation of their dreams or to avert an evil import of a dream. They also fasted thinking they would obtain the things that they wished for. Well, I need a... I need a new donkey, so I'm going to pray and fast that I'll get one. You know, I need a new car. I'm going to fast for that. Right? No. The wrong reasons. They would make themselves look all miserable so that everyone would know they were fasting. Oh, have pity on me. I'm fasting. You know, they would look all downcast when they would go out into the community. They wanted others to see they were fasting. That's the wrong reason. It's so they would look all holy and righteous. Our fast, as I've already said, friends, is to be between us and God. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 16-18, through 18, He says, Moreover, when you fast... <clears throat> now, again, I'm going to point out, we know that there were Pharisees listening. There always was. So Jesus says, Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites... Who's he talking about? The Pharisees. Do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. My friends, get all dressed up. Look good. Put your makeup on. Do your hair. Yeah, Jennifer's not. Put your makeup on. Do your hair. Look good when you're fasting. Because your fasting is between you and God. Don't fast so your neighbor can see it. Don't fast so your brothers and sisters in the church will see it. Fast between you and God. That's it. Period. At the end of it. That's all you need between you and God. Our passage today about the disciples not fasting and the garment and the wine and the wineskins, it's all nestled between a bunch of times where the Pharisees are questioning Jesus. And we have to look at some of these to get the true context of this passage. But before I go there, Pharisee. Does anyone know what a Pharisee means? Separatist. Pharisee means separatist. 
the Pharisees, like the Essenes, were very separated. They organized themselves into distinct, close-knit communities called Haburah. And apparently there were several close-knit communities of Pharisees that existed within Jerusalem. And they, could, and they could be seen by the masses, by the common people, when they would go out into the community, which made their influence much more effective. Admission into these tight-knit communities was strictly regulated. A candidate must first agree to vow obedience to all the detailed legislation of the Pharisaic tradition, which included tithing, all the ceremonial laws, the dietary purity, all of these things. An entrance into this group had a probation period. It could be a month or up to a year to decide whether or not they was obedient. So they would watch them, observe them for that period of time. They would scrutinize them or criticize them if they fell short and highly praise them if they followed all the details accurately. So I want to look at the passage before our scripture today. I want to back up the verses 11 through 14. And it happened when he was in a certain place that behold a man who was full of leprosy. Now he didn't have just a little spot on his arm. It says he was full of leprosy. He saw Jesus and he fell on his face and implored him saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then he put his hand out and he touched him saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest. So he's saying, don't stop on the way, don't go home, don't share it with your neighbors. Go and show yourself to the priest. And make an offering for your cleansing as a testimony to them, just as Moses commanded. So you see, he's following the law, isn't he? Just as Moses commanded... Go and show yourself to the priest because that's the way it was supposed to be done. As proof. My friends, here's proof. Jesus proven to the Pharisees that He has power over leprosy. That He is the Lord over it. And He touched them. You think those Pharisees would have touched Him? You think the religious leaders of that day would have touched that leper? No. That's the old. Jesus is the new way. He's not afraid to touch the leper. What's that old song we sing? Oh, He touched me. Oh, He touched me. That leper was touched by Jesus that day. Cleansed from his leprosy. I bet you he was singing that song if he knew it. Oh, how He touched me. And Jesus can touch us. Let's also look at verses 18 through 21. Then behold... Men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they could not find a way how they might bring him in because of the crowd. Imagine that. It was so packed, so crowded around where Jesus was speaking. I mean, they were shoulder to shoulder. It was so crowded in there that they couldn't even get through. They're like, how are we going to get, how are we going to get our friend to him? How are we going to get our friend in there? So they went up on the housetop 
and they led him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. When he saw their faith, he said to him, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks, flat, speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sin but God alone? But God alone. I love, I, I like to imagine things as I'm reading them. And you know, you read books, you read all kinds of books. Well, you're, you're supposed to imagine things, right? So imagine this one. This is a, this is a wonderful passage. There's Jesus. He's up before this huge crowd speaking, and he's talking to them. Now, he knows what's going on. He always knows, right? He knew that there was men trying to get a paralytic to him. So he's there preaching, and all of a sudden, you know, the dust starts falling down from the ceiling because they're up there with their hammers pounding, getting a hole in the ceiling. You know, there's a little bit of distraction, but I'm sure he just kept right on preaching. The dust is falling. The next thing you know, here comes a man down, being lowered down on his mat by ropes. They're lowering him right down before Jesus. That would have been awesome. How amazing. But again, are they happy that he healed this man? No. The Pharisees say, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sin but God alone? Well, my friends, God was in their presence and they didn't recognize Him. Jesus said in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me by the Father. Meaning, He also has authority to forgive sins. What did He tell the disciples when He sent them out? He gave them authority also to forgive sins, to heal, to cleanse. He is God. He has the authority to forgive us our sins. They would not recognize that. Verses 27 through 31. I told you there would be a lot more Scripture. After these things, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at his tax office. So he's there conducting business. He's in his office. And he said to him, follow me. Two simple words. Follow me. So he left all. He rose up and followed him. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And their scribes and Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Isn't that a wonderful passage? Why? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And He has come to call us to repentance. Call us to righteousness. Again, they're complaining. Again, they're eating and drinking. But not only eating and drinking, but now they're eating and drinking with tax collectors. They were despised by the nation of Israel because they often collected more than they needed to to make themselves rich, wealthy people. But what did Levi do? Levi did the only thing he knew to do. We go through a party. Jesus said, follow me. He's coming to my house. We're going to throw a party. Friends, wouldn't you throw a party if you knew Jesus was coming? Well, I hope so. 
We're going to throw a party because Jesus is coming to my house today and He's going to sit down. He's excited. There's a lot of joy in His heart that day. Jesus called on me. He's heard so much about Him. He's heard of the lame that's walked, the blinded eyes that were opened. He's heard about the messages, how He preaches with authority. He's coming to my house. All my friends are coming. All those scoundrels, scoundrels, those tax collectors, scoundrels, yeah, I can't say it right. But they're coming to my house and they're going to celebrate with me. Because, I mean, that's the only friends he had, right? Nobody else liked him. So that's why they were there. You can see the old and the new here, can't you? The religious leaders would have never kept company with someone like a tax collector. They would have never stepped foot in Levi's house. But Jesus would. Why? Because they are the ones that He came to save. Then there's a couple passages following our passage today. We're going to jump to chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Now it happened on the second Sabbath after the first, that he went through the grain fields, and his disciples plucked the heads of grain, and ate them, rubbing them together in their hands. Oh, remember now, this is the Sabbath. And some of the Pharisees said to them, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Well, how dare they? This is a Sabbath day. They're walking through there, and they're pulling those heads of grain off, and they're rubbing it in their hands, and eating them. How awful! How detestable did they do such a thing? You know, you all know we live on a farm, right? So you know, often in the springtime when the strawberries are getting ripe, just getting ripe, and we go for a Sabbath afternoon walk, do you think when we're down there walking and Karen would go over to pick a strawberry, I'd smack her on the hand and say, Don't you dare get one of them strawberries! It's the Sabbath. <laughs> well, she'd smack me alongside the head if I did that, wouldn't she? No. If we're going for a nice afternoon walk on the Sabbath and there's some fresh strawberries there, you better believe we bend down and we pick a couple and eat them as we go on our walk. Because we're enjoying that blessing that God has given us. The disciples were hungry. They left everything to follow Jesus. They didn't have the, the big cooler that they carried to put carry everything they prepared the day before. So they're feeding themselves with that blessing that God has given them. That ripe grain that was ready. Ready for them to eat. But the Pharisees, all they can see is their strict law. You shall not do this. Don't eat this. Don't touch that. Don't go here. Don't go there. That's all they could see is the strictness of their law. There was no grace. There was no grace in their hearts. Verses 6-10. through 10. Again, chapter 6. Now it happened on another Sabbath, also that he entered the synagogue and taught. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. So the scribes and the Pharisees watched him closely, as they always did, I'll add, whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that they might find an accusation against him. But he knew their thoughts and said to the man, who had the withered hand, Arise and stand here. And he arose and stood. And Jesus said to them, 
So he said to the Pharisees, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? I'm going to pause because they didn't answer. They just stood there or sat there, whichever the case may have been. They didn't answer. And when he had looked around at them, he said to the, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. But they were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Jesus reached out in love and touched that man, but because it was on the Sabbath, it filled them with rage. They opposed Him because He did not follow their letter of the law. Not the way God gave it, but the way they interpreted it. My friends, Jesus did not break one of the least of God's commandments. He did not break one of them. He couldn't have, because the Word declares that He was without sin. Haven't you ever read? He who knew no sin took our sin upon Himself. He knew no sin. He committed no sin whatsoever. He did not break one commandment. So He did not break the commandment by healing on the Sabbath. These same men who accused Jesus, now if they had an oxen that fell into a pit, in a pit of mud, you better believe they would go out there and get it out. Because it would cost them something. They'd have to go buy a new ox if their ox just laid in there and suffered and died. So they're going to help that ox. But they won't help that man with a withered hand. Jesus was not against the law. The parable of the garments and the wineskins unveils the true problem with the Pharisees. You know, Jesus said concerning the law in Matthew 5, 17 and 18, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Brothers and sisters, Jesus fulfilled all the requirement of the law on our behalf. Our duty is to believe in Him, to trust that He fulfilled it. But they misinterpreted it. They had an unwillingness to receive the message that Jesus had. They had an unwillingness to receive the message of grace. Let's look at the garment for a moment. It says no one would tear or cut a piece of cloth out of a new garment, rip it out of there to fix an old garment, would you? If you had a brand new custom-made suit, men, $500 I paid for this suit, are you going to take a pair of scissors and cut a big square of that so you can patch your old blue jeans? Now, I know that a lot of people today pay good money for jeans that's already got holes in them. <laughs> but you're not going to take that garment to patch a pair of old jeans, are you? You're not going to do it. For one, you're going to ruin that new $500 suit. And another thing, they're not going to match. They're different. They're not going to match. And if you did do that, 
You sew that patch on this old worn out pair of jeans, it's already been washed. They've been washed a hundred times, right? They've already shrunk a little bit. You're going to put that new garment on there, then when it begins to shrink, that's what the Word says, it's going to shrink also and tear the old. So again, both are ruined. You cannot take the old system, the old religious system, that's what it's talking about. You can't take that and apply it to the new way, which is Jesus' way. You can't apply. You can't overlay the old system with part of the new. It doesn't work. You can't say, well, yes, I believe I'm saved by grace, but I have to keep all these laws. I have to keep this. Well, we're going to be faithful to Him. We're not going to sin. But you can't take... You're either saved by grace or you're not saved. Period. I was going to say you're saved by the law, but you're not. <laughs> because no man can fully keep the law. They didn't, but they expected everyone else to do it. So you can't apply the new to the old. you just got to separate them. Choose which one you're going to follow. Which one you're going to believe in. I choose Jesus because of grace. Saved by grace. Let's look at the wineskin briefly. Verses 37 and 38 said, No one puts new wine into old wineskins, for the new wine would burst the wineskins, spilling the wine and ruining the skins. New wine must be stored in new wineskins. We were kind of talking about, uh, we were, were in Genesis where Joseph was thrown in prison in Sabbath school with the kids, and the cupbearer, and the baker were thrown into prison with Joseph, right? So we're talking with the kids and we're talking about wine. I said, do you know what a cupbearer does? And they had a little conversation there, but they figured it out. The cupbearer is going to taste the wine before the king drinks it to make sure he doesn't die, make sure it's not poison, right? But I said, so the wine, I said, what would the wine have been in? Well, in a bottle. I said, no, it wasn't in a bottle. Wine skins. So they would take goat skin... And I think sometimes they might have even used organs of animals, bladders and stuff. But they would clean them now. They would clean them first. <laughs> but they would clean them and they would put their new wine in this new organ or new wineskin that they'd sewn together. But we know what happens with wine, right? When it's new, what does it do? It ferments and it expands, right? So you have to put it in new wineskins so that it will expand. If you have an old wineskin that's already expanded, it's met its capacity to expand. It can expand no more. You put new wine in there, it's going to expand and it's going to burst it. It's no good, right? So you've got to put new wine in new wineskins. You cannot put new in the old or you'll ruin them both. So the Pharisees' way was the old way but the emphasis here, the context here is, it's not the wineskin, it's their hearts. Their hearts were like that old, already stretched out, hardened wineskin. Their hearts were not pliable. Their hearts were not willing to accept the message of grace and salvation. They had hardened their hearts. They had no room for that new wine, that new message of Jesus in their hearts. They were so stuck on their tradition. I found a little story. It says, There was a very, very poor but holy man that lived in a remote part of China. And every day 
before his time of meditation, in order to show his devotion, he would put a dish of butter up in the windowsill as an offering to God. I mean, he had very little, but he put that butter up there as an offering for God because food was very scarce. Well, one day his cat came and ate the butter. Uh-oh. Yeah, uh-oh. So he's a smart man, even though he's poor. To remedy this, he began tying the cat to the bedpost every day before his quiet time. So we're going to tie the cat up so it can't get the butter, right? Well, the man was so revered by his friends for his piety that others began to join him. They became his disciples. They decided, well, I'm, we're going to worship just as he did. So generations later, longing after the holy man, or long after the holy man was dead, his followers would do the same thing. They would place butter in the windowsill during their time of prayer, and furthermore, they went out and bought a cat so they could tie it to the bedpost. So you talk about getting hung up on traditions. You know, many years ago, so, so you know, I work at the railroad and started as a painter, and we'd paint the floor all over the entire shop. The, we have a couple different buildings. So we'd paint the floor, and in there we have aisleways where, you know, you've got to drive for a truck, people's a walk and stuff. So we, painted, we would paint yellow lines. So there's yellow lines that borders all the aisleways. I mean, you get out through there's to every door that goes outside, to this piece of machinery. There's, there was outways everywhere. So many years ago, when I first started, and for a number of years, when we would paint the yellow lines, we would use masking tape and a little roller. So we would have to stick the masking tape down and then take it and pull it down. We'd go about 30 yards and we'd bend down and we'd put it, pat it in place. And then we'd have to walk down the tape like this slowly to pat it to the floor. So when you rolled it, it was stuck. I know, this is getting old, right? So anyhow, so then you would go another 30 yards and you'd pat it down and you'd go another 30 yards. It took four to five days to paint all the yellow lines in the whole shop if we were doing them all. And that's with two people, my uncle and I. It would take us four or five days. That's how many hours and yellow lines there are in the shop. So my boss one day says, I'm getting you a line striper. So he goes out and they purchase this line striper. It's got a tank you put the paint in, a tank you put air in, and the air charges the paint tank. And it has this cool little box on the front with a hose going to it, and it, you just pull the trigger. And then you get back here and you just pull the, it's like a bicycle brake. You pull the trigger and away you go. It's got a pointer that points to the edge of the line. And away you go, man. You go paint your lines. I could paint every line in the whole shop myself in maybe five hours. So I went from maybe four to five days to five hours. Now what if I was so hung up on my traditions that I said, no, I don't want that old line striper. This is the way we've always done it. This is the only way that could be done. Well, I'd be a, a fool, wouldn't I? Praise the Lord, I wasn't that hung up on my tradition because I hated painting them lines with that tape. <laughs> but it's fun with this new tool. So we can't get hung up on our tradition. We must be pliable, like the new wineskins. We must accept Jesus' way. Even today, He might speak to something that we are kind of hung up on. My friends, be open. Be open to what He's saying to you. Let our hearts be soft. Let our hearts be willing to forgive.
You know, Jesus gave us an amazing example of forgiveness. There was a woman that the Pharisees and the religious leaders came dragging to Jesus one day. We know there was a crowd there. There always was. Jesus was teaching. And here they come, dragging this woman that was caught in adultery. They bring her right to Jesus and they say, Lord, we caught this woman in the very act of adultery. And the Word says, the law says she must be stoned to death. What do you say? Jesus says, whichever one of you are without sin, completely without sin, you cast the first stone. He bent down and began to write on the ground. It wasn't long he looked up. All of her accusers are gone. One by one, they began to walk away. You know what Jesus did. He stood up and says, Woman, where are your accusers? Well, they're all gone. He says, Your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. Now, He didn't say go and continue what you were doing, but go and sin no more. He was willing to forgive. That's the difference between the old and the new. Jesus is willing to forgive. His heart is soft, and therefore our hearts must be soft. We must accept the new. We must accept the new way. And you know, we, we must speak of the wedding. He didn't actually say what. The bridegroom. He mentions the bridegroom. Jesus said, we can't ask the disciples to fast while the bridegroom is with them, right? Now, you know, weddings were a lot different back in those days than they are today. Yes, we still celebrate, right? We celebrate. We go to the, the nice wedding ceremony, then we usually go to um, the reception. <laughs> we go to the reception. Thank you, Jennifer. We go to the reception, and usually we have nice appetizers, and we have a nice meal, we have cake. Usually there's music and there's dancing. They, you know, it's a great time of celebration. These two de decided to enter into covenant relationship with one another. It is a time to celebrate. But in today's culture, normally what happens, these are either late that day or the next day, them two are going to hop on a plane or on a ship or in their car, and they're going on a honeymoon, right? That's typically what happens today, not always. But if they can afford it, that's what they do. They're going, their friends come to celebrate with them on that day, but then they're going to go on a honeymoon. All by themselves, mostly. Most of the time, that's the way it goes. But back in Jesus' day, that's not the way it was. Bride and groom, they're going to get married. The bridegroom's there. Their friends all come from all around. Those people didn't travel like we do. They didn't have that luxury that we have. They... Most, a lot of them probably didn't go far beyond their town, except unless they had to make that trek to Jerusalem, you know. But all their friends came. They celebrated for a week. A week. They had a great party, didn't they? They would celebrate for an entire week. But how do you think all of their friends would feel? They came to the wedding. It's like, well, we're fasting. We're not going to have any. No, no appetizers. Uh, no, no meal today. No, we're not going to have that nice roast chicken. We're not going to have those hors d'oeuvres. We're not going to have those sandwiches. We're not going to have that three-course, four-course meal. No, we're fasting. 
Well, you're getting married. Well, that's okay, but we're fasting. Ridiculous, right? The bridegroom's there. It's time to celebrate. Jesus is the bridegroom. The church is His bride. It is time to celebrate. Jesus, in our hearts, should invoke celebration in our hearts, joy in our hearts, love in our hearts. Yes, there's a time for fasting, but not when Jesus was with them. There'd be plenty of time for fasting when He's gone, right? My friends, we have the love of Jesus in our hearts. Let that put joy in your hearts and allow those hearts to be pliable, allow those hearts to be soft, receive His love, and extend His love to others. And be willing to forgive others. He says you must forgive in order to be forgiven. So if you have a heart in there that's just a little bit hard and you can't forgive that, person that used to be your friend until they did that thing to you? Well, allow the Lord to work on that heart. Soften it up a little bit. That you can forgive that person. Forgive them. We must forgive in order to be forgiven. And let there be joy in your heart. Amen? Amen.